One of the questions that may have occurred to you as we've been going through the book of Revelation, and as Revelation centers on this call to conquer, and says that the faithful believer, even those who die on account of their faithfulness, they are said to conquer. Well, one of the questions is, how exactly is that conquering? How exactly is the plight of the church, as depicted in the book of Revelation, where the beast is rising from the abyss and conquering them, for instance, how is that their conquering? How is dying conquering? We think about the persecuted church across the world. Think about believers and the underground church in Afghanistan being persecuted undoubtedly now by the Taliban. How is their situation, dying at the hands of terrorists, conquering? Or even less severe, but ultimately of the same warp and woof, the ostracization or the marginalization of Christians in Western cultures, although not necessarily physically persecuted for our faith, pushed aside and, and seen as ridiculous or maligned. How is that conquering? Well, today in our passage, we get a decisive answer to that question. We get a picture of the victory of God's people, the ultimate victory, the conquering of God's people. In this passage, we see that God causes his people to conquer victoriously. God causes his people to conquer victoriously. And we'll see that shown in three sections or three scenes. Three scenes, and we'll walk through those. But at the beginning, let's just lay out some preliminary uh, interpretive frameworks. There is a popular view that many of you are probably familiar with, even if you don't know the terminology, um, that's called premillennialism or a specific form of premillennialism called dispensationalism. And again, regardless of the terms, this is the idea that this passage in particular talks about a future 1,000-year reign of Christ after Jesus comes again. So Jesus will come again, and then there'll be this future time where Jesus reigns on earth for 1,000 years before the new creation, before the eternal state. And the dispensational form of that puts a heavy emphasis on God having this sort of separate plan for Israel as its own separate promises um, from what he's doing in the church today. Okay, and that would not be a position that we as a church hold to. And so let me try to help you understand what we actually think this passage is saying, because they would use this passage in that way. We're arguing today that this passage we just read is actually referring to the church age, that this is referring to the present age, outside that last scene, of course, um, after the 1,000 years when the devil brings about a great deception. Okay? But the bulk of this is referring to the church age. One of the arguments that's oftentimes used is in verse 1, it says, Then I saw. And so folks will say, In 19, we saw the return of Christ. And now in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then I saw, which means, of course, this must come after the return of Christ. That doesn't actually work that way, because in apocalyptic literature and revelation, we've seen multiple instances of then I saw, which doesn't indicate that something happens after something else, but merely that John, in his visionary experience, saw something after something else. And so it explains that he saw a vision after something else, but those visions may be referring to the same time period. It doesn't comment on the sequence of the events themselves. Does that make sense? So this is a visionary description. It's a comment on how he experienced the vision. The other main argument I would want you to notice at the outset here, and we will get into more reasons for this 
this view as we go through the passage. We're not going to focus on, on this too much. But you'll see more reasons for this view as we go through the passage. And then in our podcast this week, we'll probably get into more of this if you're interested in that. But one of the other arguments I'd want you to see is you'll notice the battle scene that Holly read in verse 7 through 10. We've seen battles across the book. This sort of repeated occurrence, different perspectives on the same last battle. And you'll notice that the battle occurs when the thousand years are ended, verse 7. In other words, if the battle is the very end, the thousand years is everything before that, right now. And so we're living in that, what John calls here, the thousand years. Okay? And to help us understand that, it's not a literal thousand years, of course. As we've seen throughout the book, numbers are used symbolically. And so we understand that in apocalyptic literature, a thousand here is symbolic as well. And so they're meant to signify something. They communicate something. And here, it signifies 1,000 as like my daughter who doesn't totally, she's almost four, she doesn't totally understand the actual values of numbers. She'll say like 1,000 for something being really big. That's the same idea here. 1,000 is to communicate the bigness, the magnitude of the victory of God's people. Or the idea might be 10 uh, to the third power, 10 being this symbol of of fullness. It's the fullness of God's time that he's allotted for this victory. Okay, and this is in contrast to other time periods throughout the book, like three and a half years, which was used to depict the church age, but from the perspective of the church's suffering. And that was partly to connote the, church, the limited nature of the church's suffering. It will only be for half a time, a time, time, and half a time, partial time. And so here, or time times half a time, sorry. But here it's a thousand years. It's the bigness. It's the magnitude. When we're looking at the victory of God's people, let's emphasize the, 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 the fullness of that time, the magnitude of it. And so that's how we understand a thousand years. Now, as we get into the three scenes, the first scene comes to us in verses 1 through 3. And if you're taking notes, you can, I'll give you kind of the summary of each of these scenes. This first scene is this. We see that Satan is bound so that he may not deceive the nations during this 1,000 years. Satan is bound so that he may not deceive the nations during this 1,000 years. Let's read verses 1 through 3 again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss, literally. This is the abyss, you remember earlier in the book, this is where sort of the, it's the origin, it's a source of this demonic satanic beings that come to, to, to wreak havoc on the world. So he has a key to that abyss, and he's got a great chain. These symbols for the ability to restrain the dragon, we'll see. And this angel, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Remember, we saw Satan depicted as a dragon, this vicious creature in verse 12. So he seized the dragon, he seizes Satan, and he binds him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, notice, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that... He, the dragon, Satan, must be released for a little while. And so we see here very clearly the point of this section is to show us that Satan is bound. 
Now, when we speak of Satan being bound, when this passage refers to that, it doesn't mean, obviously, that Satan is not active during this age. We've seen throughout the book that Satan, this dragon, is thrashing and he's roaring because his time is short. And so he's very much active. But notice what the passage says. He's bound in the imagery of being bound and being shut up. He's bound with respect specifically to this in verse 3, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. He's bound, according to the apocalyptic vision here, with respect to his inability now to deceive the nations anymore, which is what he once did to a great extent, especially during the Old Testament period. And so we see that this this lack of deceit as well, it's not necessarily absolute. It doesn't mean that he's not able to deceive anybody. There are plenty of unbelievers today. There are plenty of people who are marked by the beast and are deceived by the false prophet we've seen. But now he is no longer able to deceive in a greater sense with respect to the elect across the nations. Think about this. This is, I mean, we've seen this to be true, right? You can just look with our eyes at church history and you can see that in the Old Testament period, as already mentioned, for in many respects, the gospel was pretty much bound up within the borders of Israel. That they were given the oracles of God, as Paul says, um, but the, the, the gospel hadn't gone across the entire globe, right? But with the coming of Christ, a decisive death blow is dealt to the devil such that the gospel has now spread to the very ends of the earth. And we see that in the book of Acts, where the gospel by the end of the book of Acts has actually reached the very capital of the world at that time, Rome itself. Athanasius, one of the early uh, church leaders uh, from the 4th century, he has a very famous book called On the Incarnation. If you have not read this book at some point in your life, you ought to. It's a fantastic book. Very short. Very good. Athanasius, in his book On the Incarnation, one of the arguments he gives for the compelling nature of Christianity is that we've seen the gospel of Christianity spread and convert the nations. We see how compelling Christianity is because it's resulted in the conversion of nations of people who formerly didn't even know this God. He says at one point in the book, he says, look, the whole earth has been filled with the knowledge of God. Those from the nations forsaking their godlessness henceforth now flee to the God of Abraham through the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. For of old, the whole world and every place went astray in the worship of idols. The nations were going after their own gods. But now, through the whole world, men are abandoning superstition of idols and they're fleeing to Christ. We've seen the binding of Satan across church history as the gospel has spread to nations outside of God's elect people Israel from the Old Testament. And we've seen this in the book as well, right? In in, in chapter 5, The lamb is said to be worthy because, among other things, he's redeemed people from every tribe, every nation, every language. Those people are now being collected up in the church age. Christ has bought the mission of the church. We just carry out his work of atonement. And then we see in chapter 7 that a great multitude, when we see the 144,000, it's interpreted when John sees the great multitude of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping God, the sealed people. In chapter 11, when we saw the two witnesses who symbolize the church's witness, this suffering witness, what does it do? It brings about the conversion of the nations as the church suffers and proclaims the gospel. In chapter 14, at the end of the vision section of the book, we see a great harvest where Christ comes and he gathers his people like a harvest, gathering up his people from all nations. And then at the end of that section in chapter 
15 with this song of Moses. It's a, it's a quick line that you might miss. But in the song, it says, all nations will come and worship you. All nations, God, are eventually going to come and worship you. So the book of Revelation, we don't typically think of it in this way, but the book of Revelation has a huge emphasis on the mission of God carried out through the mission of the church. And this, result, this is because Christ, as we said, has, de- has dealt a decisive death blow to the devil at his first coming in his cross and resurrection. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see this theme where, where when Jesus has sent out his disciples in Luke 10, he, he says, listen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. His, his, his reign is coming, it's crumbling, it's coming to an end. Or in Matthew 12 and Mark 3, he gives a parable about his ability to, to, to cast out demons. Um, and he talks about that, that he's like the, the, the one who comes in and he binds the strong man in order to plunder him. He says that no one tries to burglarize, no one tries to rob a house unless you first bind the person in the house so that then you can have your way and go ahead and grab all their stuff. And he says, that's what I've done to Satan. I have bound him. Same word as in this passage. 1 John 3.8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.13, speaking of demonic uh, uh, influence and, and, and powers, Christ disarmed these rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. And 1 Peter 3 talks about this as well, that Christ goes to the spirits in prison and he proclaims over them his victory that he has over them. John 12, 31 and 32 says, Now is the judgment of this world. This is before Christ's crucifixion. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Okay, notice he's speaking of the judgment of Satan here on account of his coming death. And then he says this in verse 32. And as a result, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. On account, notice that in this passage, on account of Satan's judgment, I'm going to draw all people. Satan has been bound. He's no longer able to deceive the nations. All peoples will be drawn to Christ. This passage makes me think of kind of that stereotypical scene in a movie. You know, in movies where oftentimes someone gets tied up to a chair, like duct taped or something like that. And it may, maybe one of the times, it's normally like the, the, the protagonist gets tied to the chair. But maybe in some movies, they end up like kind of switching the situation and the villain gets all tied up to the chair. And this villain who is very intimidating and kind of scary and they had to kind of keep their distance from him. Now he's, now he's disarmed. He can't do anything. And so the good guys can walk around him and do whatever they want. They, they, they're, free to, they're free to go. They're not afraid of this guy anymore, right? And that's the vision we have here. That, that Satan, remember this dragon from chapter 12, this dragon, this just like ferocious, massive creature that's pouring water out on the church, is now bound up and it can't do anything. It can't deceive the nations anymore. And we are the church now walking around. The dragon's just duct taped to a chair going, hey, you can't do anything. The gospel's going to the nations now, buddy. And you can't stop it. And so Jesus, he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, church, make disciples of all the nations. The dragon's chained up. He can't do anything to stop it. I will build my church, Matthew 26, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satan cannot stop the mission of the church. 
And so as we think about our own evangelism, what would it look like if this vision captured our mindset? Is as, as, we, as we leave the doors this morning, after we gather and we scatter, this is, this is just pressed into our vision of this world. That, the, that as we share the gospel with others, Satan is bound. He, he can't stop the mission. If God intends to save people, he will. And so God is able to save even the person that you least expect to come to Christ. I think oftentimes we're intimidated by just the pressure we feel from culture where the gospel is not uh, attractive, the gospel is seen as bizarre, it's seen as offensive, and so we can kind of like pull back. Or especially as we think about those people we know who seem so distant from the gospel, it seems so unlikely that that person would come to faith in Christ. But Satan's been bound. He's not able to stop the gospel going to that person. That God, if he so wills, he can save even the person that seems the most distant from the gospel. And so practically, we, 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 we go unintimidated to share the gospel with others. Knowing that God can save anybody that we share the gospel with. Where you work, where you live, where you play. There are people who need to hear the gospel. You're, where you work, your employment, where you live, your neighborhood, where you play, your recreation. And this is also the motivation then for, for world missions too. That maybe there would be some people here today who will be future missionaries, who will take the call, seeing that Satan has been bound, and now it is our call to then go to the nations because Satan can no longer deceive those people. The second vision we get is in verses 4 through 6. We see the church victorious because Satan can't stop the mission of the church. But second of all, we see that deceased, the deceased faithful saints enter into a life of reigning with Christ for this 1,000 years. Those believers who die in the faith, having faithfully served their master, now enter into a life of reigning with Christ for this 1,000 years. Let's read verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or on their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, which later he'll identify as the lake of fire, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now again, as I mentioned, uh, the folks before who, the premillennialists, those who kind of see this as a, they see this as a future reign on earth, they will appeal to a passage like this and say that it, it, it's referring to people um, in the future coming to life physically and reigning on earth with Jesus during this future 1,000 years. And what I'm arguing, what we're arguing as a church, is that this is actually a picture of deceased saints now in heaven reigning with Christ. Those believers who have gone before us, who have already died, currently reigning with Christ during this symbolic 1,000 years. Okay, a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the word throne is mentioned 47 times in the book of Revelation, and except for a very few amount of obvious 
alternatives. Um, so three times it's used to refer to demonic thrones, satanic thrones, and two times the throne will show up in the new creation. But out of all the other times throne is used out of those 47, it's always a heavenly throne. It's never just this kind of basic, this earthly throne thing going on. It's always a vision of heaven. Okay? The other thing that's really significant is that the exact same language is used in chapter 6, verse 9. So if you turn back to chapter 6, verse 9, the fifth seal, which depicted the martyrs, the, the, the martyrs during this age who are in heaven, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls, notice the exact same language here, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And so here in chapter 20, it's picking up on those exact same characters, saying, this is what I'm referring to. I'm referring to those martyrs who are currently in heaven, those believers who have died. And notice as well that it talks about, when it talks about the folks who are, came to life and resurrected here, it's the souls. It's, he specifically calls them souls. Okay, so we're talking about believers now who are disembodied. They'll be, they'll be resurrected in the future, but now they are disembodied souls reigning with Christ in heaven. Now, what's this whole thing about first resurrection? So if you want to go to that slide, I put together a chart to try to help us understand this. Okay, what's this whole thing about first resurrections? Because the other view that I've mentioned, they'll, off, they'll argue that there's, this is referring to a first physical res resurrection, and then there'll be a second physical resurrection. Pro some problems with that is that the New Testament always depicts one resurrection, not two. This would be the only place, and it's kind of hard to square with the rest of Scripture. But a couple other things is that you'll notice, why, do we take, why am I taking first resurrection then? as referring to uh, the disembodied state of believers in heaven right now. Is that I'm saying it's something, of, it's something symbolic, right? To be referring to that as a first resurrection, even though their literal physical resurrection is in the future. Well, one of the cues that we have for that is that we also have a second death. And the second death is the future death. So right now, unbelievers who die, there's, of course, a literal death, but second death is figurative. It's what he calls later in the book the lake of fire. And so if second death can be figurative, it sort of cues us into the fact that first resurrection is also likely figurative. In other words, if there's a first resurrection, there's probably a second resurrection, and if there's a second death, it assumes that there's a first death. The other thing is that this passage seems to indicate that it's believers, all believers, who are a part of the first resurrection. Why? Because it says in verse 6 that they're the ones where second death has no power over them. In other words, if you're someone who's saved and you're not going to be cast into the lake of fire, you participate in the first resurrection. It's all believers, in other words. It's not that there's two sets of resurrections, but this is the first stage of the resurrection that all believers will participate in. So just to kind of break it down here, again... I believe that first resurrection, or this language of entering into life, is referring to those who die, believers who die, who go to heaven and reign with Christ in heaven right now, and that's anticipating their physical resurrection in the future, the second resurrection, we might say. Okay? In contrast, unbelievers, their death right now, whereas believers, our death right now is sort of subverted, and John is saying it's actually like a resurrection. You're actually entering, entering into this perfected, sinless state with Christ, so that even as believers, when you die, it's really like a resurrection for you. On the contrast, when an unbeliever dies, for them, it is just a death. 
and it anticipates a second death, which for them will be their resurrection to simply be cast into the lake of fire. And so, in short, the first resurrection here is that initial stage into heaven where the dead believer now reigns with Christ, anticipating the eternal state when all will be raised from the dead, believers to enter into glory, and unbelievers to enter into the second death, the lake of fire. And you can see their description in verse 4. These unbelievers who reign, or these believers, these dead believers who reign with Christ, he says they are the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. We saw this in chapter 13, that the beast and the false prophet were, were claiming authority and claiming worship, and they're marking out their, their loyal citizens. And these are the ones who had nothing to do with that. They were faithful. They didn't compromise. And either we have two groups here. We have the martyrs on the one hand, and then we have your ordinary believer who doesn't compromise, or it's just one description of the same group. Um, And we can see that in Revelation, where martyr is oftentimes used as sort of a paradigm for any believer. Um, Even if not every believer is going to actually be martyred physically, it's sort of the pattern that John uses for the certain lifestyle that every believer commits to, a willingness to be faithful no matter what the cost. And so regardless, this is how he depicts the believer who has died and has been faithful unto death. And he's essentially saying that they have conquered, right? The believer who dies, who is faithful unto death, they have conquered. He doesn't use that language in this passage of conquering, but that's the idea as we've seen elsewhere in the book. The believer who dies now reigns with Christ in heaven. And it raises a question, like, how is this, how is death, how is this description of, of, of no matter what, you're remaining faithful to Jesus, even though it means you die at the hands of the beast, you're not receiving the mark, even though that means persecution, and as we saw, economic marginalization and difficulty, all the, all, the, all, the, all the junk that the believer has to go through in this life because they're faithful to Jesus, even potentially dying for Christ. How is that a victory? And this passage shows it to us. Because death, something that doesn't actually look like victory by human perspective, a believer dying in their faith, Christ subverts the meaning of death for the believer. He defangs death of its sting. Jesus, in the beginning of the book, as we saw, is the one who has the keys of death and Hades. He has authority over death so that when the believer dies, something that looks like a defeat from a world's perspective, it is actually their their entrance into glory, reigning with Christ. Those who the world thinks that they have defeated, those people are actually reigning with Christ now in heaven. And this fits the paradoxical nature of how the gospel works, right? That Jesus, his own victory, was as one who who reigned from the cross, as they put that inscription over his head, that he is the king of the Jews. It was meant to mock him. But they spoke better than they knew, that on the cross he actually reigned, enthroned on that cross as the very king of this universe. He is the lion who brings about his victory by dying as a lamb. And so, too, in the book of Revelation, we see believers that we conquer paradoxically, unexpectedly, in a bizarre way, we conquer actually by dying. 
by being faithful to Christ even to the end. As Paul says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And so when believers die, what do they gain according to this paragraph? They, we see that they, they enter life. They, they are quote-unquote resurrected to experience life with Christ now. They're reigning with Christ They're given judgment, literally. The ESV says that they're given the authority to judge. That may be what it is. The other idea could be that they're given judgment as in God has given them their judgment. He's declared them in resurrecting them, quote-unquote. He's declared them to be victorious. They're said to be priests with God. They will dwell in God's presence, worshiping him as priests. And notice in verse 6, they're not able to be touched by the second death. Blessed and holy. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection, the second death, the lake of fire, the eternal judgment and torment that awaits for those who reject Christ. That second death has no power over the believer who dies in Christ. This is the fulfillment of the promises we saw in the seven churches at the beginning of the book. To the church of Smyrna, Jesus said this, he said, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. I'm going to give you a crown which is to have life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by second death. To Thyatira, he says, the one who conquers, the one who patiently endures and who keeps my works to the end, to him, notice this, I'm going to give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as even when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And so as he promises to Thyatira, you will reign over the nations. So we see these deceased believers entering into that reign with Christ. Or to Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat down on my father's throne. And so we see them doing that as well. I mean, this is an absolutely powerful description. I know we're kind of talking about some of these details to make sure we understand it, but don't miss The impact of this, that believers, no matter what it looked like in this life, no matter how insignificant they seemed to the world, no matter what persecution they had faced on the other end of the globe, Jesus is saying they are victorious and they are reigning with him right now. We think about people in our own church who may die and go to be with the Lord. I was thinking about Rick Sluss when I was preparing this. Some of you may know Rick. Rick is reigning with Christ right now, a priest of God. And that is the vision that Jesus says. That, that's the vision that empowers us for patient endurance. Because get this, if, if, if death was just the end, we die and that's it. Or if death actually meant defeat, like if we die at the hands of, if a per, someone who, who's persecuted dies at the hand of their persecutors, or as, as believers, you know, maybe we're not facing that kind of persecution, but we die in a way where it's like, why would you live for Christ? This, this world has all these things to offer. You know, it's not worth it if if that's it. If death actually is a defeat, it's not worth it. But this vision says, no, it is worth it. Look at the promises that have been fulfilled to you, church, to the seven churches. This is, to those who conquer, this is the vision that you have before us. That when you die, your death is actually a first resurrection. It's a part of the glory that you enter into. It's a first resurrection for the faithful. It's a gateway into reigning and priesthood of God. And the last vision we have here in verses 7 through 10 says this. It says that God will thwart Satan's final assault on the church after this 1,000 years. God will thwart Satan's final assault on the church after this 1,000 years. So read verses 7 through 10 with me. 
And when the thousand years are ended, when the church age, that is, has has come to its very end, Satan will be released from his prison, the abyss, and he will come out now to deceive the nations. The very thing he was bound, not able to do, now he's let out to do that one more time. The nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were also. And they were tormented, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so again, here we see, as we've seen across the book, we get these pictures of these different battle scenes that we're arguing are actually just repetition of the same battle. They're different perspectives, they're different vantage points, they're different imagery of the, that end-time battle, that Armageddon, uh, the, 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 the sixth trumpet, the sixth bowl, uh, chapter 17, chapter 19, and now chapter 20 here. And the reason we can argue this is because as, for example, in the sixth bowl, these unclean demon, uh, demons who depicted as frogs, unclean animals, came from the mouth of, of the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon in order to do what? In order to deceive the nations to gather for battle. That's the same thing happening here where now Satan is, what, deceiving the nations. It involves all of the nations, the four corners of the earth, just like there were the four angels at the river Euphrates in the trumpet battle. There's allusions, clear allusions to Ezekiel. We don't have time to get into this, but if you want to look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, you'll see that it's playing on the same imagery here as it was in chapter 19, conveying that these are referring to the same battle, especially with that Gog and Magog reference. They're depicting the same defeat as the beast and the false prophet experienced. So we saw the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire, and now at the end of this battle it says, and now Satan, this is referring to the same event essentially. Satan as well is thrown into the lake of fire. And there's also, it says in the Greek, it's technically the battle, the war, with that article the at the beginning. To specify in each of these occurrences across the book, it's referring to the same battle. Not just a battle, but that battle. Furthermore, an argument would be this, is if 19 comes before 20, 19 is kind of its own battle, then Jesus comes, and now we're having a battle at 20 at the end of a future thousand years. The question is, where do all these unbelieving nations come from in chapter 20 if they were all destroyed in chapter 19? 19 shows that they were all destroyed. No one escaped. In other words, it's only believers coming out of that battle. So where would they come from in chapter 20? 20. Where, where do they emerge from? And so here we're talking about the battle at the very end, in other words. And what does this battle scene, this battle scene communicate to us? What is, what is this vision trying to get across to us, the church? First of all, three things. It says that this rebellion at the end is only at God's permission. It's only at God's allowance. That Satan is on his leash. Notice this. It says in verse 7 that Satan will be released. Not Satan's going to escape. He's not going to get out of prison just on his own. God is going to release him. It's a part of God's plan. And it's only at God's timing. It's in verse 3, when the thousand years are ended. This is all within God's control, in other words. Secondly, his defeat will be decisive and quick. We have this massive army gathering. They're, 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 They're like the number of the sand on the sea. In other words, you can't count them. It's innumerable. 
They're, they're, they're crawling all over the earth. I mean, this is a massive army that's circling around the camp of the saints. But just like in 19, just like in 12, Satan is defeated easily. It's a, it's a mismatch. It's a no contest. Basically, no effort on God's part. There's no long description of the battle. There's no long description of a fight scene. It's fire came down from heaven and the devil's thrown in the lake of fire. Bada bing, bada boom. It says that he only is able to deceive for a little while. You have a thousand year reign of, of the martyred saints. You have a thousand years of binding of Satan. And then Satan is released, what, for a little while. And then thirdly, we see that this scene shows us God's protection of his people. The massive armies that surround the camp of the saints, believers in other words, the, the beloved city, the city that God loves, in other words, the new Jerusalem, the believers, we'll see that city in, in, in the scenes that follow, the new creation, the new Jerusalem. In contrast to the Babylon city, the harlot, this is the bride city, this is the new Jerusalem, God's people, the armies gather to, to assault, to have a final assault on the church. And God swiftly destroys them. It is an image of God's protection of his people. That Christ has bought his people in the gospel, he is going to secure them to the end. He will not let them be destroyed. God and Christ will protect the people that he has purchased. We battle a defeated foe, in other words. That in the gospel, Satan has already been defeated. His time is short, as chapter 12 said. He's thrashing about right now because he knows his end. And he knows it's coming quickly. And Christ promises, as in Ephesians 5, talking about the, the nature of husbands and wives as a picture of Christ in the church, we know that Christ is going to present his bride to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He will not let his bride perish. And so as we've looked at these three scenes, we see all of them envisioning that God causes his people to conquer victoriously. First, we saw that Satan cannot stop the mission of his church. Satan is bound so that he may no longer deceive the nations. We've seen that even if believers die in, in, in pursuing that mission, they enter into glory with Christ. The deceased faith will enter into a life of reigning with Christ for this 1,000 years. And then thirdly, finally, God will protect his people from Satan's last effort to destroy her. That God will thwart Satan's final assault on the church. And so as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, all of this victory that we've seen is because we are simply riding on the coattails of Jesus' victory as citizens of what he calls an unshakable kingdom. That when we think about the victory of the church in this passage, it's not ultimately because the church is somehow this strong figure that's able to conquer in its own strength. What do we see? We see a church as depicted as a camp that's gathered around by massive armies that would, I mean, it wasn't for God pouring out that fire, that camp would be destroyed. That our death as Hebrews says, when Christ came to defeat death, it, it's Christ enabling us to no longer be afraid of death because now death is the gateway into glory. These are not things that we've achieved on our own. The kingdom is not something that we in our own strength, in our own good works can muster. The gospel says that we cannot do it. It was by the very death of God's son and his resurrection that we are saved by faith in him. 
And so this victory that we celebrate this morning in a passage like this is ultimately because we're riding the coattails of Christ's victory. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is symbolism, his body and his blood, his death, in other words, symbolized in the bread and the juice. It is a picture of the victory of Christ and the gospel with a view ultimately to the arrival of his kingdom. He says, I will not partake of this until I am with you in my kingdom. And so the Lord's Supper is not just a remembering of the past. Jesus did say that. Remember me when you partake of this. Do this in remembrance of me. But it's also looking forward to the future. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we look to his decisive victory accomplished in his death. But we also look to the future, knowing that that victory purchased the full kingdom that we have now been made citizens of by faith in him. That in his death that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, when he paid for our sins on the cross and rose for our justification that we might, might be made right with God, he purchased our rights to be citizens of this unshakable kingdom and he has purchased and guaranteed its victory.